Court, la cour. Good morning, be seated. <clears throat> In the case of Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia against Royal Sun Alliance Insurance Company of Canada, for the appellant, Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia, Mr. Ryan D.W. Delziel, QC. Delziel, I'm sorry. Esther Madur. For the Intervenor, Ontario Trial Lawyer Association, Gavin McKenzie. And for the Respondent, Royal Sun Alliance Insurance Company of Canada, David A. Tompkins and Mark A. Borgo. Mr. Delzil. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices, uh, this appeal uh, arises out of a litigation process involving a tragic uh, motor vehicle accident. Three individuals were injured, of which one was killed. Uh, but the question for the court today is not about tort liability or anything of the sort. It's a question of insurance coverage associated with the phenomenon sometimes called late breach. Late breach refers to when an insurer some distance into the litigation process asserts a breach of the insurance policy by the insured that the insured says, that the insurer says ends its duties under the policy. And so the insurer's counsel gets off the record and the insured is left to fend for himself or herself. And meanwhile, other parties, uh, plaintiffs and co-defendants are left with a situation where a defendant is now likely to be financially hollow. The question is when and who can say that it is too late in the process for that to happen. The insurer has carried on too far, and now the insurer is stopped from going off coverage. I will come to that question directly, but very briefly, just a bit of background. Uh, here, the problem arose from uh, arose when facts came to light in the course of examinations uh, for discovery, specifically uh, counsel appointed by the respondent, Royal and Sun Alliance, I'll refer to uh, the respondent as RSA, learned that RSA's insured, one uh, Devisari, had consumed alcohol prior to his fatal accident. Uh, that was impermissible under his policy terms, and RSA proceeded to go off coverage. That was discovered in 2009, more than one year after the litigation had been commenced, pleadings had been filed, and as mentioned, um, examinations for discovery had occurred. And more than three years before the trial. What do we make of that? Uh, Bradfield, uh, Bradfield took a uh, chance, it, right? Bradfield knew about the off-coverage position for nearly three years before trial. Bradfield took a chance, took the $600,000, turned down the settlement offer, ran the trial on the hope that it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be found liable at all, lost big. Does that have any legal significance here? Not in my submission, Justice Brown. Uh, Justice Brown, I think that asks the wrong question. It focuses on the wrong stage of the analysis, because I think by the time you get to the point at which RSA is going off coverage, there has already been 
uh, an assurance for estoppel purposes. Decisions have already been an taken. Assurance of, an assurance of what? An assurance that coverage persists. All right. And is that the same thing as an insurance of indemnity at the end of the day? Uh, in this case, it would be, not necessarily in all cases. Right. In this case... But, but you, want, this case, you want this to apply as a general rule. Well, well, I want certain principles to apply as a general rule, and it just so happens that in this case, defense and indemnity would align. Uh, if, if, there was in, if there was intoxication, then there was neither a duty to defend nor a duty to indemnify. In other cases, depending on the allegations, uh, there may be a duty to, to defend, but not a duty to indemnify. Well, not just, depending, be, on, not just depending on the allegations, could be depending on how the, the defense proceeds. The, the insured defendant might refuse to cooperate, or there may be a, a discovery later of a, of a material, of an undisclosed material change in risk that may have nothing to do with the case, but which may avoid the, the coverage ab initio. So, so yes. what, what are all of, how do you factor all of those considerations in? Well, and I, I suppose to the list you just mentioned, I might add uh, the, the findings of fact made at trial might well affect the, whether there's a, a duty to indemnify. Indeed. But the point, the point is that, that at least on the facts of this case, and, and I don't want to focus too much on them because we are dealing with a moot case, but, but at least on the facts of this case, um, um, defense and indemnity would be aligned because of the nature of the policy term in question. And uh, as to the other concerns, I, the, the reality is, uh, Justice Brown, I think you're just focusing on, 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 on uh, with all due respect, uh, the, the, the wrong facts. If, if there was, if an estoppel arose from what RSA did, then that's the end of the matter, at least so, at least so far as defense would be concerned, uh, and, and in this case also indemnity. Now you said that you didn't want to focus too much on the facts of this case because it's moot, which yes. I, sound, I, I found, perhaps I misunderstood you, this isn't a reference. This is a case. And, and, and unless you argue the facts of the case, frankly, we have no business here. Because we don't just legislate in this place, at least not so far as I'm aware, which really calls into question whether we should be deciding this thing on the merits at all. Justice Rowe, that's a completely fair concern. I agree that, that uh, this court does not entertain private references. Uh, what I would say, however, is, is that uh, we are going to uh, address this case in the context of its facts. Uh, its facts won't need to be canvassed in great detail for you to be able to do that. And I will have a submission about why the court, despite mootness, should exercise its discretion, a discretion it no doubt possesses, to decide this case and the legal issues it presents uh, on their merits. So just, just to complete my very brief recital of the background, uh, it was found at trial, and I think it's not controversial, that the fact of alcohol consumption could have readily been discovered by RSA uh, in 2006, three years prior to the, the discoveries, by way of a coroner's report that RSA, uh, its adjuster, inexplicably uh, failed to obtain. The result well, was that... Well, excuse me, sir. So you're talking about actual knowledge. So everybody agrees that there were, there were no actual knowledge by the insurer, right? I do, I do agree, yes. So in order to succeed in this case, you have to, uh, to allow or, uh, or uh, suggest that it should be constructive knowledge. 
that is what I will be submitting. Yes, Chief Justice. Do you have any precedents on that issue? Because I don't know about any precedents. There are precedents that contemplate presumed knowledge in the context of insurers and insurance policies. Those precedents have not yet been applied in the context of the claims assessment process. I'm going to invite the court to make a very incremental extension of the common law that would create uh, the possibility of presumed knowledge uh, in certain circumstances in the claims assessment process. So that would be, the, new, that would be new law that we, you ask us to decide, right? It would be, it, yes, but I would say a minor extension of established law elsewhere in the insurance context. In the context of this case, on what basis would you say the insurer is presumed to know something that it didn't know of? Uh, and this, this is, I'm being anticipated in various ways, uh, Justice, so I apologize if my answers seem incomplete, but, but what I'm going to be contending is that the duty of good faith, which is well established, encompasses a duty of investigation. And that duty of investigation, when it is not carried out, creates presumed knowledge as to what should have been discovered in the investigation. And because RSA's adjuster failed to obtain the report uh, that, that it was admitted could readily, could easily, and ought to have been obtained, in fact, there was a direction to obtain it. So when you say uh, duty of investigation, you mean the duty of fair investigation that is owed to the insured, yes? Yes. And that insured owns, owes a corresponding duty of disclosure. That is part of the reciprocal duty of utmost good faith, yes? I would agree with that, yes. Yes, did Mr. Bradfield owe a similar duty to Royal? Uh, RSA was not uh, the insurer for Mr. Bradfield, so I, I would say the answer to that must be no. But you're saying that, that Royal owed a duty to Mr. Bradfield? No, I'm saying that, that, uh, that Mr. Bradfield is able, is, is able to rely on the breach of duty by RSA to Mr. Devasari. That's effectively meaning that he's owed a duty without reciprocal obligations. Right? You stand in Mr. Bradfield's shoes, and Mr. Bradfield could have disclosed this information, didn't, but now, through you, says that he's entitled to rely on the coverage that was extended and would not have been extended had he actually been forthcoming with the insured, a duty which the deceased would have had but obviously couldn't discharge. Justice uh, Brown, yet again, respectfully, I must disagree. I do not say there are two duties, and there doesn't have to be, because Bradfield is able to rely on Section 258 of the Insurance Act to make claims that Mr. Devisary or his estate could have made on that policy. So th there only needs to be one duty in issue for there to be an estoppel that arises. Well, it as creates a right of action, course. but that doesn't mean it creates a legal relationship between the insurer and... Mr. Bradfield, or does it? In my submission, it does. Okay. First of all, all right. first of all, this court has never said privity of contract is required for there to be a legal relationship. There's academic authority that says there ought not to well, be. All of, tort, all of tort law is a, a testament to that. So, yeah, that's that's nothing new. Well, and and when you have a statutory right to sue, it seems to me that that statutory relationship is, is something we would call a legal relationship, Justice Brown. Mr.
about the duty to investigate. I'm wondering on the facts of the case, what should have triggered that duty? You said that uh, the insurer should have obtained the report from the coroner, but here the police report, if I'm not mistaken, was not alluding at all to alcohol as the cause of the accident. It was the high speed. And even the mother of the deceased uh, told that her son was not uh, drinking. So what should have triggered that duty to investigate uh, by RSC, given the facts known to RSC at the time? Well, Justice Cote, I think you're right about all of those facts. I would just say two things in answer. One is that the adjuster was specifically instructed to get the coroner's report. And I, and I think the evidence was that in the ordinary course, he would have and couldn't explain why he didn't. So, so the fact that the police report doesn't get into it uh, in the context of a death, in the, in the context of a death, as opposed to the usual sort of motor vehicle accident, the coroner's report naturally becomes an essential document. And it, and it is indeed inexplicable that, that uh, the, uh, the adjuster would have failed to take steps to obtain it um, and, and, and he admitted that he easily could have. He just didn't. Okay. So um, I think I've argued about half my case, but in little tiny slices. Um, what, what I'm gonna do is, is uh, uh, back up, widen the lens, and, and map out more comprehensively uh, the way we say the analysis should proceed in cases of this kind, because it is a distinctive context for, for estoppel. Uh, and, and I start with this. The, the principles governing this sort of problem, and this goes back to the Chief Justice's question about uh, new law, uh, they've not been considered by this court for 100 years since a decision called uh, Parrot. And that's a decision amenable to several different interpretations, depending on how one reads any of the five judgments given uh, in that case. And of course, much has occurred in the law of contract and insurance since 1921. So I say to a large extent, we are on, on Terra Nova, we're on a, a clear field in considering the, the legal issues on, in this appeal. And my central contention, and, and this is, uh, I'm gonna map out the steps now so that you can see the whole picture. Um, to bring us up to speed with the law of 2021, it, it's, it's this. When we're dealing with a problem in the nature of estoppel, fundamentally we're looking for a promise or assurance that changes legal relations. And because it's a promise or assurance that gets us into questions of knowledge and intentionality, which you'll recall were prominent in the Court of Appeals analysis. And, and here's how we say you, you solve it. Here's how we say that assurance ought correctly to be found in this uh, distinctive context. There's four steps. I'll unpack them all later, time permitting, but, but here they are. The first step, and this goes back to my answer to the Chief Justice, is recognizing that the insurer has a duty to conduct a prompt and thorough investigation when a claim is made. Does that, that is, does that at all stand in tension with the things that we've said about the constraints on an insurer investigating for coverage vis-a-vis uh, -vis the insured? No, no, Justice Brown. Witten and Fiddler 
certainly have been uh, were important cases in pushing back on making sure that insurers uh, don't persecute their insureds, don't go too far. The submission I'm going to make essentially uh, exists in counterpoise to that. It's, it's what puts it into balance. It's what ensures that claims are treated fairly and in a balanced way by, by, by an insured, uh, by an insurer. Uh, for for the benefit not just of the insured but for but, but indeed for all parties. Well, we talk about balance, but the balance is of course the balance against the insured's duty to disclose. Right again, there's that mutuality which which <clears throat> doesn't exist uh, in in respect of the relationship that you're positing here. There's no obligation. There's no balance. Um, it's just simply a, a duty that's owed. Um, I mean, you're, you're talking about a different balance. I think this is the Goldilocks type of argument that, that the insurer can't be too hot in going after the insured, but can't be too cold in the interests of, of, the, of the plaintiff um, That's right. or the co-defendant. Um, and I, I'm, I say with respect, uh, I mean, your, your argument that, well, that may be difficult, but, but, but you know, it should be difficult to be an insurer. I, I, I say with respect, that is a very difficult argument to accept. We have carefully crafted that balance between the insured and the insurer. And I think um, to skate over the possibility that this balance may be upset now by the ability of a, of a third party to rely on that is um, it's not a very satisfactory answer. Well, can I can I pick up on Justice Brown's preoccupation and just give you a specific? Maybe you have a good answer for this, Mr. Desiel. That if we impose a kind of a, a a stricter duty to scrutinize possibility of a, a policy breach at this early stage on the insurer insure, insurance company don't we risk slowing down the proceedings while the, the insurance company does a deep dive and, and in the end everyone ends up paying for this early scrutiny that might in the end of the day not prove to be decisive uh, Justice Kasser, I, I don't respectfully, I don't think so. When we're talking about something that's reasonable, balanced, thorough, but incremental, uh, we're not necessarily talking about something that's going to slow things down. We're talking about something that 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 responds to the practicalities of a, of, a, of a given situation. And in this case, the practicalities are are highly evocative of what that could mean. It was literally a matter of asking for the document. So that that risk seems, uh, with all due respect, to be ephemeral to me and 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 and, and indeed speculative. Um, and and I have high confidence that in future cases, if that should prove problematic, if if um, the intensity of investigation and this goes back to Justice Brown's concern, ends ends up uh, itself causing difficulties for the insured, uh, then. Then, I, then we, we know from Witten and Fiddler that the courts have the tools to deal with that. I think, I, I think that's where the bogging down comes in, is the court having the tool to deal with it. If I may follow up on, on Justice Brown and, and Cassirer questions, <clears throat> your argument may be appealing, 
the problem is when you put aside the old law and use those words, in other words, the principle that we know about that you have to establish specific knowledge by the insurer. Um, if we put that aside, and, and I understand your argument being, well, you know, the insurer has an obligation to do the investigation properly, and if he did not, he's deemed to have, no, have no, the knowledge. The problem is, where do you draw the line when, when, when you're at that level of, of proper, uh, you know, extensive investigation? Where do you draw the line with a view to giving proper guiding principles for the future? Specific knowledge is quite clear. That's a matter of proof, but if, if the insurer has, has the knowledge, he cannot uh, deny coverage. But for your argument, where, how, how should we draw the line? Well, I'd say, I'd say two things about that, uh, uh, Chief Justice. One is that, that uh, I think of particular assistance uh, jurisprudentially are the decisions of this court in Canadian Indemnity and Coronation Insurance from 1990 and 1991. Which, which talk about how uh, insureds can't simply rely on the insured and then later place blame on that insured if there's a problem. They talk about what's presumed to know, what a, what they talk about what a reasonably competent underwriter would do. And, and you know, Justice Gontier used, used powerful language in describing the importance of that um, in, in the, and this is all, this is in the pre-context or pre-contract pre context I'm just asking that it be incorporated into the claims assessment process. But what Justice Gontier said, and I think it's very important, he said the courts see the pathology of the insurance business, I'm quoting him here, and accordingly justice must be done in cases where the confusion might have been avoided by the diligent action of both parties. So, so we, have, we have acceptance in the insurance context of presumed knowledge, we have the standard of the reasonably competent underwriter, which is something that courts are capable of, of assessing in my respectful submission. And, and then Justice Corey takes that further in, cor in uh, coronation insurance and emphasizes another crucial consideration, which is the public protection rationale uh, for mandatory insurance. In that case, it was air carriers, but of course it would apply to motor vehicle. And, and, and yet again, he said, insurers have to be presumed to know matters that are, in, in his words, within their grasp. And, and, and so we're not really talking about new law, Chief Justice, we're just talking about the application of that form of analysis in terms of what the insurer's duty is into the claims assessment process, bearing in mind that in cases like Fiddler, the court uh, there again adopted the principle that an insurer must assess the merits of the claim in a balanced and reasonable manner. So that's, that's the jurisprudential part of my answer to your question, but there's a second part, um, and it's this. I want to leave you with a reference uh, that, will, that I think will help the court provide guidance on this point um, in terms of what the elements of a good faith investigation would be. And there's an article, I won't ask you to turn it up, but it's behind tab six of my authorities. And it's by a, a fellow named David Debitum. And I'll just give you the reference. It sets out at pages 42 and 43, an 11 point checklist for what he considers to be the elements of a good faith investigation. And so when, when you ask Chief Justice about how the line gets drawn and what, what rules apply and what guidance can be given, uh, I commend to you the Debenham article, and I think it will assist the court in providing that guidance. 
Isn't there a, a sort of a practical and policy problem with what you're putting forward to us in the sense that undoubtedly on occasion an insurer will say to the insured, we will defend the action. We will, we will seek to hold you free from liability. But as to whether we will indemnify in the event of liability, that is another matter. And if we adopt your position, the duty uh, undertaking the defense seems to imply undertaking to indemnify. And if that is so, will not insurers basically fight with their insured right at the beginning as to whether they're going to defend at all? And isn't this just highly problematic for the whole system because you've intertwined too tightly, perhaps unintentionally, the duty to defend and the duty to indemnify? Uh, no, no, Justice Rowe, I think that the, uh, let's put it this way, the nature of the assurance that will be taken in any, in any given case from the assumption of a defense will depend on the policy terms, which recall, everybody in the room, all the parties are going to get, they're going to all get them in the disclosure process that's under the rules of court, they're, they're not admissible, but they're going to get them. And so parties will be able to assess whether in any given case, uh, the assumption of a defense is or is not going to be um, um, uh, an assurance with respect to indemnity. And, and in this case, where the issue that subsequently emerges is one of alcohol consumption, defense and indemnity do converge because with alcohol, with alcohol consumption, if that's the problem, there would be neither defense nor indemnity. And so, and so that will be a fact-sensitive assessment in terms of whether the, the assurance that I'm saying is associated with the, with the assumption of the uh, conduct of a defense is, is going to be context-sensitive. Mr. Dalziel, I'd like to pick, Justice Rowe makes a very good point. I, I thought the jurisprudence, including of this court, dealing with the duty to defend, part of its part of its purpose was to take some of the sting out of that moment in the litigation process because to do otherwise might serve to upset the, the real issue at the end of the day on, on who was to indemnify. And so that, that uh, courts have been more forgiving in some respects on the allowing or imposing on insurance companies a, a duty to defend, knowing that there's a way out down the line. It, is, I think the Justice Rowe has a point there that the fight might shift uh, as, as you say, courts are asked to give guidance at an earlier stage on a different kind of point. Isn't that a, isn't that a potential access to justice kind of problem? Uh, well, well, first of all, Justice Kasser, I think your point is well taken that uh, the, that cases like Scalera were designed to uh, facilitate defense while accepting that there is differentiation potentially at the end of the day between defense and, in, in, and indemnity. But, but 
it, it nevertheless seems to me, uh, and, and, and my submission is, that that's not likely to be a significant practical problem because of the capacity of the parties to look at a policy term, because they will have them, look at the allegations in a case, because they will have those too, and make a reasonable assessment of whether there has been an assurance of defense only, defense and indemnity, or something else, depending on the nature of the issue. So I, I don't see a chilling effect here in, in terms of defense. I see, I see this as something that, that um, intelligent and experienced counsel uh, and reasonably competent adjusters all can manage collectively together in a way that ensures expectations are not inappropriately upset as they were in this case. What is the standard of perfection that you are seeking from the insurer in terms of the investigation it conducts? Are you seeking it? Because it sure sounds to me like you're seeking, if not a standard of perfection, something very close to it. Uh, I look at the context of this case, and if ever, uh, in my experience, one would expect in the police report a finding of alcohol consumption, particularly in a situation where there is a death, this would be it. So they looked at those reports. They interviewed people, including uh, Mr. Bradfield, uh, and and you know, they looked at other reports, the motor vehicle accident reconstruction report and so on and so forth. They did a whole lot of things. They inadvertently, I would suggest to you, failed to look at the coroner's report. I guess the police did too. And, but it seems to me you want a standard of perfection. And if that's what you're asking, or something very close to it, um, before you would be content. Clearly, if the insurer is willfully blind to something that it should know, it must look to. That's another story, perhaps. But I, I'm just not sure, and I'm, I'm rambling on with this question. What standard of perfection are you looking for? Well, and because, Justice just, Moldy, excuse me, bear in mind, this is a relatively straightforward in that sense. You've got an easy sort of, oh, there's one thing that they could have looked at. You're going to have all kinds of other cases where there's nothing anywhere close to being that, as you would say, simple to look at. And, and uh, where do we go? Well, Justice Moldaver, certainly I don't contend for a standard of perfection. I, I think that what I'm contending for is a standard of reasonable, thorough, competent diligence as articulated by this court in um, Canadian indemnity and, and, and coronation. So and thor thorough and diligent, those sound, that sounds awfully close to perfection, especially where on these facts, the one thing that wasn't done is the one thing you're saying has to be done. In other words, it had to be a perfect investigation, even though well, the adjuster spoke to the witnesses, including your man Bradfield himself, said nothing about drinking, uh, even though there was nothing in the police report that, that created any sort of an indication that there might be, there, there was, there was other, than, other than closing off that last investigative step, in other words, perfection, um, I, they did everything. And there was nothing that, that suggested the possibility of a breach of this kind. So, so it must be perfection. And, no, and, no. The, and the standard of thoroughness and diligence seems to suggest that. 
Justice Brown, I, 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 again, I respectfully disagree. We're talking about a, uh, an adjuster doing the very thing he was asked by the insurance company to do. Right. The one That's thing, a, the one just, just, just follow your instructions. I mean, we're not talking about going on a manhunt. We're not talking about him, you know, getting a CSI team out um, and, and blood sample or going to the morgue and blood sampling the body. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about the, the Mr. Eddie doing the thing he was asked to do, and then he didn't do it. This, this is nothing close to perfection. This is just doing the job he was given. Well, it is perfection in the sense that it was the one thing that didn't get done right? The, the interviews all occurred. The police report was reviewed. No indication of, of consumption of alcohol. The one thing that didn't get done, you say, should have been done, which then raises Justice Moldaver's concern. Well, what about in other cases? And, and you say, well, it's just diligence, it's thoroughness. Those, those, are, those sound like quite exacting standards. And, um, and the problem is, again, we know from Whiten and Fiddler that if an insurer goes too far, this can breach the duty of good faith owed to the insured. So we just can't wing it based on this case. But, but Justice Brown, all I'm doing is quoting back to you what, what this court said itself in 1990-91, which is the insurer should be taken to know, uh, presumed to know, the things that were within their grasp. This, this was manifestly within RSA's grasp. And, 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 and so in my, in my submission, that's, that's not perfection. We, we evidently have different uh, conceptions of, of, of what per, per, perfection amounts to because, because my conception of it is do your job and, and access the things that are within your grasp. Well, isn't this skating one over. just slipped through the cracks? I mean, unfortunately, everybody isn't perfect. And this slipped through the cracks because, as I understand it, Mr. Eddie thought that some other adjuster an accident benefits adjuster was going to be looking into this and it fell through the cracks. So as I, my colleague suggests, seems to me you're pretty much looking for perfection here. There's no suggestion for a moment that they sort of consciously got down and sat down together and said, let's not look at the coroner's report, you know? Justice I mean, Moldy, I just think there's a vast gap between the kind of willful blindness that you just mentioned and uh, failing to take a basic step that was contemplated in an instruction letter. I, I mean, I'm not sure how much more I can assist the court on this point, candidly, uh, because we have a standard of reasonable competence, and when things that are instructed by the insurer slip through the cracks one way or another, that, that in my submission, is not reasonable competence. That's, that's, your, that's your just argument. a blatant error. And, and, and I would just add, sorry, there, there, there is a, a point of deference to be made here because the trial judge took a very different view of, of, of this conduct. The trial judge viewed it as, as quite a blatant error uh, on the part of, of RSA's adjuster. And, and insofar as that's going to form part of the analysis, there is something to be said about palpable and overriding error. I could just as easily say to you, that they could have looked at this whole thing and said it's redundant because we have a police report that doesn't mention it in the context of a death. And if that isn't reasonable for an insurer under those circumstances, where there's no evidence where the box alcohol is not checked off or is checked, you know, and says no alcohol consumption, I would have thought that's enough right there. And that they're going to the coroner at that point, which one might have thought the police would do, 
in their investigation uh, would be redundant, if anything. Well, then, Justice Moldaver, all I can say to that is one wonders why uh, the insurer, again, uh, presumably acting under its duty of utmost good faith, in specifically instructed the adjuster to get the coroner's report. I, I mean, I, I think, candidly, we ought to defer to the insurer's judgment in that regard. The insurer thought the adjuster needed to get the report himself. The insurer didn't just say, police report's good enough. The insurer said, we want you to see the coroner's report, too. Well, they didn't say it's mandatory. It's a suggestion that was made. In any event, we we're, I don't want to yeah. waste your time on this anymore, but... Well, speaking for myself, I'm not sure it's a waste of time. The, 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 um, your argument, uh, Mr. Delziel, is not, is not that the estoppel kicks in when there is negligence, that the negligence precludes the insurance company from, f from insisting on, on, on going back on things. It's a representation. Where, where does... You say the trial judge made findings, but I'm not sure he was turning his mind to the, the estoppel point here. How does that fit into the estoppel argument? Well, the, the trial judge made a characterization of RSA's conduct that, that gave rise to, in his view, waiver, and he didn't reach the question of estoppel. So, Justice Kasserer, you're, you're completely right that, that um, the, the analysis factually that I'm talking about doesn't doesn't marry up with what the trial judge was doing. The trial judge's analysis was about waiver, and for a variety of reasons, uh, this this isn't and can't be a case about waiver, and we make no argument about waiver. This is entirely a case about estoppel. Uh, wh wh where we say the estoppel comes from is a combination of, of, of several further factors. But can uh, I, I'm sorry, but can I just ask you to address the issue of what is the difference uh, different knowledge requirement under uh, waiver and estoppel. Is it different? It is. It is just How? as Jerry Katsanis. The difference. The difference is that in the uh, waiver context, it, it is established under Saskatchewan River bungalows, and and I think that's the most notable case of this court that it is uh, actual knowledge. In the estoppel context, it it uh, at least at least in this this aspect, in this context, it should be constructive knowledge. It should be based on what the insurer is presumed to know having done their job. And, and so we say that, that the Court of Appeal respectfully erred in effectively conflating waiver with estoppel. Estoppel is more flexible. It is equitable. It seeks to do justice uh, where justice requires it. And when an insurer ought to know something, other parties ought to be able to so rely on that. So what are and, you relying on to say that uh, promissory estoppel um, can look to constructive knowledge? What are you relying on in making that statement? What I'm relying on is, is, is this. If, if the insurer is presumed to know what they ought to have known, then the logical result of that is when the insurer assumes and maintains the defense of an insured some meaningful distance into the litigation, it, that is giving insurance to the other parties that 
we have completed our investigation and there's nothing discoverable out there at this point that would interfere with coverage. I, I'm sorry, I wasn't clear in my question. I was asking for your legal authority in making the submission that knowledge is different for promissory estoppel and that constructive knowledge would be sufficient uh, in the context of promissory estoppel generally, not just uh, on the facts of this case or in this specific I, context. I, I don't have authority at my fingertips for constructive knowledge in promissory estoppel generally. I do say that, that under the miracle test, there isn't even any contemplation of knowledge whatsoever. All the miracle test requires is a promise or assurance. And so all we know well, from we, that- Well, with an intention to change behavior, right? With an intention that people can, can, can rely on it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that gets you around the knowledge question. Right. No, Justice, Justice Brown, that's right. It just raises what the knowledge question is. Is that at what point can we say that there's sufficient intentionality? And, and, and I, think, I think we can say that, when it's in, it, that, that there is sufficient intentionality to the assurance arising from the fact that the insurer is taking deliberate action in the litigation with knowledge that is imputed to it by law. Under, under insurance law principles. How can, how can you intend to do something? How can you intend to, 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 how can you intend not to, how can you intend to induce reliance by refraining to exercise a right, in this case, the right to hold the insured in breach that you don't know that you have? Right? But, but when, when you ought to know it, and you engage in the conduct anyway. But, but, if you, but, but intention is intention. I, I'm, the, the, I, I, I understand, I understand you know, that your argument that, well, they ought to have known it, but, and sometimes constructive knowledge, um, I mean, obviously in our law, constructive knowledge is a thing and we use it in all kinds of, of, of situations. The question is whether it works very well in estoppel because because you're, you're, you're taken on your theory as making a representation with an intention, right? To, to, to affect the legal relationship that you say exists between Bradfield and the Royal. But I'm wondering if that intentional component really precludes any kind of ought to have known argument because intention requires you to know of it. Maybe they should have known it. Maybe, maybe, I mean, you're not arguing estoppel by negligence, but maybe some, you know, someday there's an argument out there like that. But, but I don't know, try as I might, I can't understand how intention can be derived from anything other than actual knowledge unless we're going well, to have constructive intention as well. Well, Justice promise. Brown, if, if the law takes you to know something, if, if, if you're accepting that threshold proposition that, they, that the insurer is taken to know it, then that then grounds the finding of intention because we, because we are assuming as a baseline per the first branches of my argument 
that they do know it. And so therefore, when they take those steps, they are taking those steps with intention. But they're not. That's a fiction. There is, there is sort of a middle ground, if I understand it correctly. Help me out with this. Where the insurer knows the facts that would allow the insurer to go off coverage, but doesn't appreciate their significance. There's case law on that and stuff written about that where knowledge is effectively, I guess, call it constructive, call it imputed, but you know, you know the pertinent fact. You just don't appreciate its significance because you haven't checked your own policy carefully enough or whatever. And in those cases, I think knowledge is imputed, but so, so, so there is a little bit of what I'll call imputed constructive opening, but not so, where there's clear evidence that the insurer just, just simply does not know and cannot know that it's in an off coverage position unless it knows certain facts. So, uh, Justice Moldaver, I, I hate to say it, but I just got interrupted um, by the plant watering lady, and I think I missed <laughs> a crucial part of your question. So, so um, maybe you could maybe you could restate it because I did hear parts of it, but 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 I I was I, I think that the the plant lady didn't understand the sign on my door. <laughs> but there are situations where the insurer knows the pertinent facts but doesn't appreciate it in terms of a breach yeah. that would allow an off-coverage position to be taken. And so, for example, there's a case involving a dirt bike, I think, where the insured should not have been driving a dirt bike. It wasn't covered in the policy or whatever. And the insured should have known that, looking at its own policy. The insurer should have known looking at its own policy, it didn't appreciate it. So in those cases, you say, you can't get out from underneath. You knew the pertinent fact. The fact that you didn't know that it allowed you to go off coverage is too bad for you. That's very different than what we have here. They didn't know the pertinent fact that would have enabled them to go off coverage. So you're a step well, back from it. Right, so Justice Moldaver, I, I take no issue with those cases that but those are actual knowledge cases and my argument unabashedly uh pushes the matter out further to to presumed knowledge that's 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 the i just seems i don't to disagree me it's with quite you. a bit it seems to me it's a very long extension not just a little one well justice moldaver all i can say is that this court has said that insurers are taken to know things in the past and I thought I was just echoing that back to you. Mr. Dalziel, I just want to confirm a point of timing. You say that uh, the insurer failed to get the coroner's report in, in due time, but when the insurer took the off-coverage position, he had not received yet the coroner's report. It was just right after the discovery. That's right. So he took the off-coverage position without being... Uh, uh, induced in doing that by the coroner's report because he had not seen it uh, when it, it took its position. Th that's right. He took he took the matter all the way to discovery, which is what I say is is the problematic conduct that amounted to the uh, assurance of an on-coverage position. So equity's been invoked, um, and of course, that brings in all those hoary old maxims like clean hands. 
Is there any legal significance in your view to Bradfield not disclosing to the adjuster that he and the deceased were at a bar prior to the ride? Uh, my understanding of the evidence on that was that was that Bradfield simply didn't have a recollection of alcohol consumption. Uh, and, and so I'm not, I'm not sure if there's any significance to that. I, I believe that's, that's my recollection of well, the record. Well, anyway. I, I think there is significance if he was drinking and he said, oh, I don't remember I was drinking because that really is misleading. Well, I think, I think all he could say was that he remembered where he was. And, you know, they were, they were riding motorcycles, so, so it's not necessarily the case they would be drinking. In fact, one might expect they wouldn't be. I didn't, um, I didn't ask about them drinking. I asked about them being at a bar prior to the ride. I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, Justice Brown, I, I, mean, I, I don't drinking have confidence in the tulips, evidence but... on the nature of the establishment. I can't answer that question. It, I, 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 it sounded to me like a restaurant and bar. I can't remember its name. Okay. But, but it, 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 I don't have confidence in, in, in whether it was the kind of place where people, you know, like, uh, you know, an Earl's or whatever, where people eat or drink. Can I just ask you to make time for the detrimental reliance point, given how strong your friends on the other side can be anticipated to come back on it, as to whether there was detrimental reliance to any other party, um, given that there was potentially no difference in the progress of the action or the nature of the defense, whether RSA was involved as a statutory third party or defended in the name of Bradfield. Yes, thank you for the question, Justice Kasserer. Um, reliance is interesting in, in this context because of the nature of the litigation process. And in my submission, uh, it's, it's naturally the case that treating the claim as covered is intended to be acted upon by the insured himself or herself and is acted upon because they step back from conduct of their own defense. So proof of intention that it be acted upon and proof of reliance in that sense converge here. And, and because the insurer knows there will be reliance, they must also intend that that assurance will be acted upon. So those two components of the estoppel effectively combine here and ought not to, uh, instead to be compartmentalized. And I would refer in that regard to what Justice Holland said in, in Rosenblood, and I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of brevity. It's in paragraph 132 of my factum, and he says, if coverage was timely denied, the defense could well have been conducted differently. Uh, examinations for discovery could have been conducted, been conducted with a different emphasis. But I say that's true for all parties in the room. Uh, the reality is that the conduct of litigation by other parties will always be impacted by where the money is or is not. So where there is an assurance of a non-coverage position, as I say arose here, that shapes what happens. That shapes settlement discussions, that shapes procedural choices, that shapes examinations for discovery. There is reliance by everyone in the room. But what do we do with the fact that everyone knew about the coverage issue as of July 2009? All that reliance fell away. Anything that but, happened after that was done with full knowledge of the Royals' off-coverage position. Yes, but in the meantime, who knows what happened? 
And that's, that's the problem. As a practical matter, by the time issues like these are litigated or by the time issues like these emerge, you can't unscramble the egg of the years of litigation that, that happened prior. The counterfactual of what happens in those previous years, Justice Brown, if the insurer had done its job properly and denied coverage from the start, is necessarily going to be speculative and probably loaded with self-serving evidence. And it also, as I point out in my factum, raises serious problems of privilege because to, to prove it, to, to, to unpack it, lawyers would have to testify about their instructions at the relevant times, what was in their litigation brief, what happened in settlement talks that are confidential. All of those are privileged matters. So, so that's why, and in my respectful submission, we just don't want to go there. I say that in cases like this, uh, reliance in the presence of an assurance of this nature in the litigation process should at a minimum be strongly presumed. And um, like Justice Holland, I have difficulty seeing how that presumption uh, could reliably or properly ever be rebutted. But you... All that does is it makes the requirement disappear. Right? It's just, it's, it's, it's gone. It's just assumed. And if it's assumed, it, it just doesn't exist as a practical matter. And, and so, you know, again, you're asking us to change the test in a way that's rather significant. Justice Rowe, I would just say I'm asking you to apply the, te the test in a way that, that makes practical and common sense, given what we know of the litigation process. But you would agree we're looking at uh, Bradfield's uh, detrimental reliance uh, in this case, as opposed to I, the insureds. I say we could, we could look at either because they both had a legal relationship uh, that, that could but, um, disentitle uh, RSA but from... It's, it's Bradshaw who's bringing the application here, who seeks to establish promissory estoppel to him. You're saying it could be either. I'm saying it could be either because, because e either because there's two legal relationships. There's, there's the legal relationship directly between judgment creditor Bradfield and RSA and the legal relationship between uh, um, the devisaries estate and, and RSA. And by either mechanism, through, through either mode of analysis, uh, you could say that uh, RSA was stopped from denying whether to devisary who Bradfield's claiming through uh, or to, to Bradfield, who's got his own direct action, um, through either mechanism, you could say, if there's detrimental reliance, uh, then, um, then, then RSA can be stopped. But isn't, isn't, isn't equity of the, of the nature that it is unfair to assert a, a, a given legal right against me rather than against someone else? It must it must be unfair against me. That's always embedded, it seems to me, in, in, in these rules of equity. And you're saying, no, if it's unfair against the deceased, then somehow Bradfield can avail of that for his purposes. I'm, I'm, I find that a very dubious proposition. Well, uh, Justice Rowe, I'd say you'd have to take that up with the Ontario legislature because what Section 258 does is allows uh, Bradfield as judgment creditor to claim 
to claim through and asserts the right and assert the rights of the insured. So if so, that's a statutory modification of what you might otherwise consider to be consistent with equity. But the point is that if the insured has the right, then Bradfield has the right. And that's what Section 258 sub 1 does. Yeah, but the question here is what are the implications of that? And you're using promissory estoppel to ascribe certain implications to it. And, and, and that's a distinct question, it seems to me, than what the statute says about that. Uh, Justice Brown, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, I think we're ships passing in the night, so. Can I ask you this, though? If we are looking at it from Bradfield's perspective, there is no legal relationship until he gets judgment, until judgment. So do we look at reliance right. before that point in time, or do we, I, I mean, I, I'm just trying to figure out the logic of that. If, to the extent we're looking at Bradfield's detrimental uh, reliance, uh, can we look at reliance before there's any legal relationship just because there's a potential one? Yes, I think so. I, I think that that, uh, that there does not have to be. Uh, the, it's an interesting question, Justice Kirkusanis, uh, but but I would say that in equity, there does not have to be a perfect temporal alignment between the two. If there's an assurance relied upon, and then a legal relationship arises such that that uh, assurance can be the subject of an assertion of estoppel, then then at that point the elements all align. What they just they all just need to come together eventually, in my respectful submission. I think that that's 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 what equity would compel. Excuse me, could I just ask you this? It may be an unfair question to you, but was there a mechanism for Mr. Bradfield the moment he found out some three years into the piece that Royal was going off coverage? Could he have brought a motion at that point before we get into trials or anything else to um, have a judge determine whether or not uh, <clears throat> Royal was stopped at that point? And, and I'll just add to it, by waiting three years, should, your, should Mr. Bradfield be stopped from raising it? My understanding of the process was that Mr. Bradfield attempted to have contemporaneously with the liability trial, the I know, question I know of that. coverage that, in. I know that. That's some years later, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure when he could have done it before that. Pardon? I mean, that's, that, well, well, that's when they're all in court together. Well, that's not Sorry. my question. My question is, could he have brought a freestanding motion to say, you cannot do this, RS, because <clears throat> you're stopped? long before there's any trials. That may not be a question I can answer. Um, and uh, well, that may, that may and, and, and I'm not sure there would have been practical utility for it at that time because it's, it's of course not until after the trial that the, that the crucial question of coverage when you get this lopsided allocation of liability where he's 10% liable, but it's a $1.8 million judgment. Precisely, precisely. I'll roll the dice and if it goes for me, great. And if not, I'm going to say, you know, you shouldn't have been able, you should, you shouldn't have got off Royal. Well, I, I, I certainly I'll play can't agree both ends against the middle. Could be a tactical decision on his part. We have no idea. Not having been trial counsel, I can't say, but I, but, but I certainly can't uh, necessarily say there was dice rolling involved either. It, it, it might just be practical thinking on the part of counsel. 
And certainly he did, endeavored to address the matter so that it was all bound up together. We know to that extent, was true. To the extent we're dealing with an equitable remedy, I would have thought it's quite important. And what my brother Moldava referred to is, the technical term is latches. Uh, Justice Rowe, I don't, I don't have uh, the law on that at my fingertips, but, but uh, my understanding of the latches cases is that the, the delay involved has to be quite profound and prejudicial, and I failed to see what prejudice would have arisen from uh, the delay we're talking about in this case. That's, that's what I seem to recall reading in M&H a long time ago. Mr. Darziel, don't infer anything from my question, but uh, in your factum, you're making submissions as to the cost, and you say that uh, you should not be uh, condemned uh, to pay any cost because uh, of your status, and uh, RSA says, no, 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 we should consider you as if you were in Bradfield shoes and exposed to the same consequences. So what do you have to say on that? I, I say that uh, the trial lawyers came to this court uh, bona fide and, and as uh, a recognized public interest litigant with a view to assisting the court in resolving a case in which leave had already been granted. So there was evidently a matter of public and, and, and systemic importance to Canadian civil litigation to be addressed. Uh, the, the, the purpose of my client's participation was to assist the court in a, in a circumstance where the court had already decided to take here and, and, and decide the case. So I say that given TLABC status as a nonprofit public interest litigant endeavoring to assist the court with a case that it already wanted, I, I say that, that in those circumstances, an award of costs against TLABC would not be appropriate. And of course, nor does TLABC seek costs against RSA in, in um, uh, what appears to be the um, slender prospect that uh, we prevail. What about, well, you've talked a lot about the TLABC. What about the other side? Why shouldn't they have their costs since they've been forced here? I know I have from your, 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 your submissions and your factum, there's a suggestion that the Royal could, you know, have just remained silent. Um, yes. But with great respect, that seems to me unrealistic in the face of submissions that would effectively impose, as you acknowledge, new obligations. Um, Incrementally, well, incrementally new obligations, you say, but still new obligations How, on insurers. Um, well, there's any number of ways that, that the, the vast financial power of the insurance industry... Oh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come you know, I mean, on. All right, thank you very much. The time, time is up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Gavin McKenzie. Thank you, Chief Justice. May it please the court. My, my client, the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association, appreciates this valuable opportunity to make submissions on the important question of when, if at all, knowledge of a policy breach may be imputed to an insurance company so as to prevent it from denying coverage to the victim of an automobile accident claiming through an insured defendant. I propose to use my time this morning to list four considerations that we respectfully submit should be taken into account by the court in answering the question whether in some circumstances constructive knowledge may form the basis of an estoppel 
in the automobile insurance context. The first consideration we submit that the court should take into account is that the relationship between an insurance company and a plaintiff claiming through an insured defendant is a special relationship governed not only by the common law and equity, but also by statutory provisions with a consumer protection orientation. Automobile insurance policies are not just commercial contracts. As the Court of Appeal for Ontario has expressed it, they are part of our social contract, which protects persons injured in automobile accidents. The second consideration we submit that the court should take into account is that estoppel is an equitable doctrine rooted in considerations of fairness. Historically, it was often said that courts of equity are courts of conscience, and all courts applying the common law today are courts of equity. In Ryan and Moore, which we've referred to and cited in paragraph 13 of our factum, this court adopted Lord Denning's characterization of the doctrine of estoppel when he wrote that the doctrine of estoppel is one of the most flexible and useful in the armory of the law. This court held in Ryan and Moore that when parties to a transaction proceed on the basis of an underlying assumption, neither of them will be allowed to go back on that assumption when it would be unfair or unjust to allow them to do so. If one of them does go back on that assumption, the courts will give the other such remedy as the equity of the case demands. In the context of negligence claims in the automobile insurance context, we say an insurance company should not be permitted to go back on the underlying assumption of coverage on which the commencement and continuation of litigation and the insurance company's defense of it was premised. The third consideration we ask the court to take into account is the realities of automobile accident claims in Ontario. The reality is that most people injured in automobile accidents cannot afford litigation unless plaintiff's lawyers assume the risk and fund litigation on a contingent basis. The related reality is that many, if not most, defendants cannot pay substantial damages if insurance coverage is unavailable. Where there may not be insurance coverage, injured people will not bring claims to assert their rights, and plaintiff's lawyers will be disincentivized to act. Affordable access to our civil justice system is enhanced when parties can rely on an insurance company's express or implied representation of coverage. The fourth well, and final that, consideration. That, excuse me, excuse me, sir. That that may be a question that should be put to uh, members of the uh, legislature. It may be put to them as well. Mm. But it's um, it, it's it. This case enables the court to articulate the circumstances in which, if any, if there are any, and you may decide there are none, um, the requirement of actual knowledge has the beauty of certainty, but ha has the disadvantage of uh, inflexibility. Um, it's open to the court in our respectful submission based on the authorities to at least extend to um, a minimal extent the doctrine of estoppel um, in order to improve access to justice, which is a consideration with great respect. That's Supreme why, that's why, that's why the National Assembly in Quebec changed their regimes, no-fault regime. Yes. yes. 
Now, let me get back, if I may. The fourth and final consideration is that investigating coverage is a fundamental aspect of an insurance company's business. That's what they do. A narrow actual knowledge standard would permit an insurance company to neglect to investigate coverage in a timely way. Are, are we really concerned about incentives here? I would have thought the incentive would be for insurers to bird dog things down. Now granted that may not have happened here. In fact, the incentive is so strong that we've tempered it, right? We've said that they're constrained. So um, I, I, I'm not sure you're concerned about incentives to kind of, you know, go easy on coverage issues is really a realistic one. It, in my submission, it is a risk that if this um, court were to maintain the narrow um, and absolute standard requiring actual knowledge in all circumstances. Um, in, in my um, submission, it may it may it, it may give them an incentive to actually acquire that knowledge. I would have thought it would be the opposite, Justice Brown. With respect, yeah, that um, in those circumstances, uh, there, there's a way of deciding this case which would incentivize. Um, insurance um, companies um, not to do a reasonable and diligent investigation um, so to, to avoid uh, the, the result um, of having to pay um, greater damages <clears throat> even though they have a basis to deny, um, deny, pol deny um, coverage as a matter of policy. Thank you very much. Your I time see my is time's up. up. Yes, thank, thank you very you much. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. The court will take its uh, morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Be seated. Mr. Tompkins. Yes, thank you. Uh, my, my friends come before the court um, seeking, as I understood it, to clarify the law with respect to estoppel. But to be fair, they're really trying to move the needle a long way. They're trying to create new law, new law that is uh, well beyond the facts of this case. The facts, this case was predominantly a fact-driven case. But the new law they wish to establish is that once a defense has been filed by an insurer for its insured, coverage is forever bound. And that would be going too far, I would submit. Now, there was a question near the end uh, of my friend's presentation by the court about whether well, trial excuse, counsel- excuse me, excuse me, sir. It may be a bit unfair to your colleagues because what essentially they are saying is that uh, 
it's not so much that uh, you could never, uh, you never raise any uh, issue or any, any violation of the insurance policy, but that the insurer has to make, has to be diligent, has to make a reasonable investigation, so on and so forth. So it's on the means more than on the result that the argument was based, I think. Um, well, you'll see that in my condensed book, I, I talked that the uh, investigation by RSA, my client, was reasonable. It may not have been perfect, but it was reasonable. Under the circumstance of this case, there were witnesses who were interviewed. The police were interviewed. The deceased's mother was contacted, and she only wished to see the adjuster, the investigator, Mr. Eddy, after the police reported to her. There was a scene investigation. There was contact with Bradfield, and there was contact with Latansky, two of the people who gave evidence at the examinations for discovery some years later. They weren't particularly forthcoming with respect to information, but all indications showed that this was a, an accident that was occasioned by reckless speed on the part of the deceased, Mr. Devisari. Now, my friend says that wasn't sufficient. He says, RSA, through their investigation, Mr. Eddy, could have, and he used the words readily or easily, he should have, could have, or ought to have had the coroner's report. Well, if we looked at the task assignment issued in it, right from the get-go when the accident's known to the insurer to gather information and investigate what is clearly a serious accident, one of the boxes ticked off was get a statement from the insured. Well, that would have been difficult. Another thing was do a scene investigation, identify the witnesses, investigate with the police, and get a coroner's brackets death certificate. Now, it's fair that the coroner's report wasn't secured, and it's fair that Mr. Eddy, the investigator, doing everything else, said back to the insurer, can't you get the death certificate, the coroner's death certificate, through the accident benefit department? because there are generally benefits available to an estate when a loved one is lost. However, what standing did RSA have to get a coroner's report that seems to be the crux of the suggestion that this was a failure on the part of RSA to properly investigate? They had no standing to get the coroner's report. The coroner's act clearly shows that it's only available to the next of kin. I suppose it's also probably available to the police, but it's not available to an insurance company who simply writes to the coroner and says, can we have a coroner's report? We'd like to look at it. How could Mr. Eddy have got that coroner's report? Well, the evidence is clear that he did eventually, after the police briefed the deceased's mother um, about the accident facts and how speed was such an issue, he could have asked her, because he did get her to sign some authorizations for the police investigation, I suppose he could have put an authorization to her to say, I'd also like to get the autopsy report with respect to your deceased son. Now, what would she have said about that? I think the obvious question would have been, why would you want that? And my friends would suggest the reason why you want that is you at least know the deceased was an M2 driver. That's got a, it's a, gra um, it's a license that has a restriction on it, just like G2 um, for a car, M2 for a motorcycle. You can't drive with alcohol in your system. 
So if one had suggested that to the mother, well, we'd like to see the autopsy report to see if your son had been drinking, what we do know is what her answer would have been. Her answer was, my son doesn't drink alcohol. Would she, we're speculating, would she have permitted access to the coroner's report? She may have, she may not have. The investigation carried on and Eddie reported that this was a reckless speed accident. He considered whether it was a race and speed test, which is also a breach of a policy, but said, I don't really think that there's anything there. He essentially reports that this is a bad liability case for this insurer under this policy. He closes his file well before, he closes it in 2017 after 22 hours of investigation. He closes it and the litigation starts in 2018, a couple years later. Now, the first real knowledge of any drinking on the part of anybody, whether Bradfield or Devisari, the deceased, comes up through the Latansky discovery evidence under oath. Now, Mr. Latansky, by that point in time, he had had a very detailed transcribed statement by the police and never mentioned any alcohol consumption, but he did under oath at the examinations for discovery. And immediately, RSA on learning of that said, that would be a policy breach. That's evidence of a policy breach. Let's stop for a second and think about that. So they want to take an off coverage position as soon as they learn. Who gets the coroner's report? It's Solicitor Watt representing the plaintiff, Catton. He gets the coroner's report because by this point in time, he has standing to move before the court under a disclosure motion, a WAG motion as we often call it here in Ontario, requesting that the coroner release the, port, the report for the purposes of this litigation. And Watt brings that motion because it's opened up a big door for him. It's opened up possible more insurance coverage for Catton and also for Bradfield, who was a plaintiff. So he was excited about that opportunity because an off-coverage position, if it's demonstrated, and it ultimately was admitted, if it's, if it's established, all of a sudden the available insurance coverage by both Bradfield as plaintiff, he was both a plaintiff and a defendant, and Catton, who was only a plaintiff, immediately goes to a minimum of $1.8 million because the off-coverage position of Royal allows only $200,000 of minimum limits under the Insurance Act, but each of Catton and Bradfield had an OPCF 44R, such common underinsured coverage, with a million dollars, which meant for each of their claims, they could get an additional $800,000 from each of their own insurers. Now that was, that was quite telling in this case, because if Bradfield escapes liability, that's where they're going to go for their funding. And in fact, that's where Bradfield went for his funding, paid for by his insurer, State Farm. By the time those discoveries were in play, the people who were discovered were Catton, Bradfield, and Latansky. Devisari is not discovered because he's not alive. He can't tell us anything. 
So its knowledge comes out in that date, in June or July, June, I guess, late June of 2009, and RSA proceeds promptly with respect to its position on coverage. The court asked whether a party could bring a freestanding motion to deal with the issue of estoppel that we're here many, many years later dealing with. And of course, they could have. In fact, the cases that Bradfield, in presentation of this case, which is really a subrogation case by one insurer against another, the cases that he relied upon, and what my friend now raises, show that both insureds and insurer do bring that freestanding motion. It was done in the Logo case, the very case that the trial judge, Justice Sosna, said was the seminal case on this point. But in Logo, the facts were that the, there were multiple defendants in that case. There was a township and other defendants. The claim was issued early, which can happen quite frequently after an accident. And the coroner's report was secured. We, we don't really know by who, but undoubtedly, it would have been secured either by a next of kin um, authorizing its release, but probably more likely one of the other counsel brought a disclosure motion. And the coroner's report in that case came up before the statement of defense was even filed and had found its way to the insurance company, Wawanisa. Six months before they filed their defense, they had the report in hand. I would suggest, I'm speculating, it came into their hands just as this one did because the action had already been initiated and someone had secured its production. And just like in this case with Mr. Devisari with a restricted license M2, the late Mrs. Logel, she had a G2 license. But that case shows something else happened. Despite filing a defense after they had the report, completely different than RSA's position here, three more years went by. Wawanisa didn't appreciate that there had been um, this report in their hands even before they filed their defense. Discoveries took place, but after three years post-filing the statement of defense, other defendants had been let out. The only parties left was the estate and a township. At that point, there clearly was prejudice. The litigation landscape had changed, and the local estate brought the freestanding motion to determine whether Wawanisa, under those circumstances, was a stopped. And the court, at first instance, agreed and a stopped the defense, said you couldn't go down to the minimum limits because of the policy breach, because you had it in your hands even before the defense, three and a half years before the discovery, after there had been settlement discussions and parties let out. That's detrimental reliance. Now, that was the local estate bringing the application, but six weeks before the Court of Appeal heard the appeal in this case that's before this court, the Commonwealth and Shane Campbell case was heard in the Court of Appeal. I knew about it. We, pre we um, presented it to the court and to uh, Bradfield's counsel. They didn't report it in the, in the decision, but in the Commonwealth and Shane Campbell case, again, a freestanding motion was brought well before trial 
By the way, the trial in that case is scheduled for January of 2023. So in that case, it was the insurance company that initiated a motion for a declaration that they didn't have to defend because of a policy breach. What were the facts? The facts in that case were they were defending under a homeowner's policy, which had a restriction that said, we won't cover you if you're driving a vehicle on a public highway that needs to be registered in some manner. And that's exactly what Mr. Campbell was doing. But they knew that because he, the accident happened on a public highway, on a dirt bike that had, was not in any way street legal or licensed and needed no registration. So to the extent that this court asked whether a freestanding motion could have been brought in the issue of latches, yes, it could. And it's in all likelihood, if you're going to raise an issue of estoppel, it's the proper course of conduct to follow. So what do we have here? We have four cases that I suggest the courts below have considered, but in each one of them, actual knowledge was before the insurer. In two of the cases, the freestanding motion was brought in Logal and Commonwealth. In two others, the insurer continued to defend 100 years ago in Parrott. They continued to defend, even though they knew the facts, they continued to defend all the way through trial. The prejudice in Parrott was that they knew that the um, machine that injured the plaintiff didn't have a guard on it. They knew that from their early investigation and that was the exclusion. But they thought they could win the case on liability in any way, so they only offered $100. The plaintiff didn't accept it. They went to trial. The verdict was $1,400. 100 years ago, that was probably a considerable sum of money. And then the insurer said, well, we've learned at trial that the injury was caused by the, a machine that didn't have a guard on it, and that's an excluded issue under the policy. But the detrimental reliance in that case was established because the plaintiff admitted, the injured plaintiff admitted in the court on the coverage dispute between the insured and the insurer that she wouldn't accept the $100 but she would have accepted 700 and the insured where coverage was being denied in that those facts said, I would have settled this case for $700, but the insurance company was running it. Rosenblood was the same thing. Rosenblood through first instance and then the court of appeal, it was a solicitor's um, dishonesty claim, which is excluded under the law society coverage for lawyers. It was known immediately, but nonetheless, no coverage position was taken. There was discoveries, there was a settlement uh, proposals, and then much longer, longer line, the Law Society insurer said, we're not going to cover this. And the insured's estate, the Rosenblatt estate, had to take it over, ended up settling the case for, I think it was $33,500, which the suggestion was could have been settled a lot earlier with a lot less expense. Even interesting in that case, the insurance company, even though they now knew why they were going to raise a denial, still offered $15,000. So we have a predominantly fact-driven case that comes before this court. And I would suggest that in the law, as it currently exists, it worked well in this case. 
And if we're dealing with, if we're dealing with the issue of estoppel, it's not only a question of direct knowledge, actual knowledge, but there has to be a prejudice. And there was no prejudice here. In fact, the appellant, because really the appellant is Bradfield and his insurance company, okay, the appellant is the one that drove this case to trial. Okay. The appellant Bradfield, the one who was apparently drinking with Mr. Devisari, um, demonstrated two things. And this is um, established by the costs ruling and the judgments below. He demonstrated that he always took the position he had no liability. That's not even 1%. He was found 10% at fault. And he demonstrated that he gave no credence to Mr. Catton in a future income loss. This trial, the original underlying trial, the Catton trial, only took eight days. It was a sizable judgment. But only three days were presented by the plaintiff. Who were the adversaries at that trial? Well, the plaintiff was presenting his damages, but on the issue of liability, the dispute was between Kingsway, the underinsured carrier of Mr. Catton, and State Farm, Bradfield's liability insurer. And trial counsel Todd McCarthy took the position, no liability on his client, which would mean Kingsway would pay the claim, other than what RSA would have to be obliged to pay and had already agreed to pay under the minimum limits, the $200,000 plus adverse costs. But he also took the position that there was no future income loss claim. In advance of that trial, the defense offers were as follows. RSA had already agreed to pay and had, I believe, already advanced $100,000 because their limits were 200 and the parties agreed they would split it between Bradfield as a plaintiff and Catton as a plaintiff, put the money in play. There'd also be an obligation to pay adverse costs because that's a component under the, uh, under the act, the legislation and the policy wording. Kingsway, Kingsway, the underinsured carrier for Catton, if, if Bradfield has no liability, Kingsway was gonna pay the, the judgment up to $800,000 being the spread between 200 and the $1 million policy. Kingsway offered $75,000 if, uh, if the plaintiff Catton would settle. Bradfield, through his insurer's state farm, offered $100,000. That's a total of $275,000 plus adverse costs from RSA. Kingsway lowered their offer because when the trial went, they dropped it by another $25,000. So shortly before trial, there was $275,000 available for the plaintiff Catton, but he didn't accept it. He wanted more and State Farm contesting both liability and damages, the only party that contested damages said no. They took the gamble, they went to trial and the jury awarded a significant sum for future income loss. But if you look at the um, judgment in the underlying case, the total judgment including a prejudgment interest for general damages and past income loss and prejudgment interest adds up to less than $270,000. So where was the gamble? The gamble was 
on Bradfield's part, on his insurer's part, no liability and no future income loss, and he lost on both, and he lost badly. He tried to delay the trial after three years. Maybe he wasn't ready for the damages case. I don't know. But he lost badly. He perhaps had been comforted in the years past because at a very early stage in the Catton trial, Bradfield brought a summary judgment motion after discovery. He already knew Royal's position of off coverage, but he brought a summary judgment motion and was successful. Bradfield was out of the Catton action until there was an appeal of that decision of summary judgment justice and the Ontario Court of Appeal overturned it and said, no, there's enough for you to go to trial on. There's enough evidence. We're going to let you go to trial. So Bradfield and his insurer must have thought, we have a pretty good case. We won it once, but now we're back into it. And he must have thought he had a pretty good case because he's got Kingsway putting some money on the table. And on the overall assessment of the case, RSA has no more money. Kingsway's running a risk. They could pay a lot more. But Bradfield and State Farm, they were willing to throw in $100,000, all in. So that's the underlying trial. If he was so concerned, as he suggests, that RSA should be in for their full million because their policy breach shouldn't stand up, he should have brought a standalone motion, just as Commonwealth did with Shane Campbell, and just as the local estate did in the case that Justice Sosna ruled was the seminal case. Now, the system works well in Ontario. My friends represent the plaintiff's bar and no plaintiff was going to be suffering here with respect to a lack of insurance compensation, whatever played out. In fact, Bradfield as State Farm comes before this court as the appellant, now the TLABC representing the point on this clarity of the law, he comes before this court, but they already accepted the RSA off coverage position because they paid $600,000 to Bradfield, the appellant, on his own personal injury claim under their same policy. So there is no second part of the test. There's simply no prejudice to Bradfield. This case should never have come further than it has. But leave was granted. The leave application says there's one issue. Should an insurer be permitted to deny coverage for breach of an insurance policy three years after electing to defend a claim? That's how it was worded. Well, it wasn't three years that it was defending the claim. The statement of defense was filed in March and the discoveries happened in June. Counsel was appointed, however, by at least a notice of intent to defend the previous fall. The Catton action, which is the underlying basis for this 258 subrogation case, was only started two years after the accident. Can I ask you, Mr. Tompkins? Yes. Here, as a matter of, uh, of uh, the legal framework here, uh, right. do you accept 
um, the proposition that you can look to detrimental reliance by either the insured or the third party who's claiming through 258. I know your position on the facts in this case. Right. You say there right. was none by, I, by, by neither party. Right. But uh, I'm, I'm looking for some assistance in terms of what's the right question under the framework of uh, uh, promissory estoppel. Okay, well, 258 permits a person, a person uh, to present a direct cause of action if they have a judgment um, and they can bring it, and, and it's unsatisfied. It's, it's a little different than Section 132, which uh, specifically excludes motor vehicle um, cases. 258 is created so that there is always compensation to the minimum limits available in the jurisdiction which we're dealing with is Ontario. But it, it references a person. So Bradfield is a person. He has a judgment by way of cross-claim. But he is the only one who could suggest that the estoppel should be premised upon detrimental reliance because it should be his detrimental reliance. If my friend suggests it should be any party, even not before the court, I'm not aware of any uh, authority on that, but in any event, there was no prejudice to anybody else. Bradfield as plaintiff certainly benefited to the tune of some $600,000. He never would have received that kind of compensation uh, otherwise. Um, and, and where else was the, uh, who else in any way um, had any detrimental reliance? Did they act contrary to their interests? Not at all. Um, I believe it can only be the party that comes before the court that says, my uh, position was prejudiced. He lost an opportunity to settle, for example, um, or he's gone so far into the litigation that for some reason, it, its character has changed. In Logal, they were three and a half years after the coroner's report, three years after the defense, parties had been let out by the insurance company defense lawyer, and then the insurance company tried to take the off coverage position. That would be wrong. In, in Parrot, 100 years ago, the insurance company thought they had
Can you hear us, Mr. Tompkins? Well, you, you just dial them up on the on that phone. Okay. Mr. Tompkins, we can hear you now. Oh, okay, and I can see you, so thank you very All right. much. All right. Um, I don't know where it might have broken off, but the point about Section 258, it, it's part of the compensation um, scheme that is a benefit to the injured parties. Also, the underinsured coverage, which is so prevalent. 258 sub 1 says you don't have to be the insured who pursues the claim as against the insurer. If you have a judgment and you can't collect on it, it can be any person. So there's no contractual relationship between Bradfield and RSA. And the insurer, even if it was Catton, the insurer is absolutely liable, absolutely liable, regardless of whatever breach, whether it be even before the policy was uh, uh, created on a, on a misrepresentation on an application or a failure to pay a premium or a misrepresentation on the true facts or a subsequent policy breach. The insurer is absolutely agreed. RSA, these cases are worth more than 200000 and RSA said, we'll divide our money up. And they agreed it would go $100,000 to Bradfield and $100,000 to Catton. And
I have no video. All it says is Gavin McKenzie across my screen. And I just think you can't hear us. Uh, now I see Gavin, but I don't see the courtroom. Huh. I'm not buying your submission, Stephen. <laughs> You think it's our, our video? We can see and hear you now. Um, I can see the court now. I can see the court, but I, if someone would ask me a question, perhaps I could know if I got bit, uh, sound. Can you hear us? I can hear you, yes. And we can see and hear you. Okay, thank you. The, um, I don't know where that technology uh, failure is occurring, but it's occurred twice. And if it's my end, I apologize, but I'm not a computer wizard. So my point about 258 is it's a good balancing. Uh, Section 11 gives the insurer the rights against Bradfield that it could raise as against Devisary if the knowledge of the breach materialized. So if this is an estoppel case, there was no actual knowledge and there was no detrimental reliance. The two things you need for estoppel. This case doesn't need to um, move the needle or advance the law. It was such a very specific factual case. It went very badly for the Bradfield insurer who at one point wasn't even in the litigation, but came back in, took a gamble and lost badly. And I don't believe I have any further submissions to make other than that, unless there's a question. Uh, Mr. Dalesville, any reply? We cannot hear you. Sorry, I didn't. I, I had the toggle off All right. on the on the headset. I apologize. So, Chief Justice, a few uh, brief points. Uh, the, the first is is that um, you were correct to point out to my friend. My argument is not that once a defense is filed. Uh, uh, 